Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Thursday, June 30th. Derek Van Riper, Al Melkier here with a mid-season check-in. We are going to talk about some players that we just haven't discussed a lot on this show over the course of the season. Tons of ground to cover, and it's just a good time to check in on players. Halfway through the season, almost halfway in terms of games, it feels like it's halfway because that's what the 4th of July weekend tends to be for me in baseball season. Al, it's the midway point, not the all-star game. The 4th of July weekend. Yeah, well, that's just the reality. I mean, we can call it first half and second half around the, the all-star break, but I think deep down we all know that it's much sooner than that. Absolutely. Now, I think one player that's been frequently discussed by the national baseball media this season, his future with the Yankees, his pursuit of an MVP award, is Aaron Judge. And I think the, the way I want to talk about him today is if you are drafting today for the rest of the season, and I did spend some time earlier this week lamenting the very limited number of second-half drafts, where would Judge actually go for the rest of the season? I think we get caught in the moment sometimes dismissing a player's injury history when we're evaluating an amazing year. I think it happens probably more commonly with really good pitchers. Carlos Rodon might be a good example of a player this season that Back during draft season, the injury risk was priced in. Then a few months pass, and he pitches really well, and everyone sort of moves the injury concerns aside, perhaps more than they should. I think we're guilty of maybe doing that a little bit with Aaron Judge, too. I've always thought on a like a per-plate appearance basis, he's been undervalued for about three years running. So I do yep. have Judge on a few teams right now. I understand how you can look at a player Raider right now and, and see where he's at and want to take him as the first overall pick or at least the top five pick if we were drafting today. Do you think that's the right call based on the injury history and the types of injuries he had? Because that's relevant too. He has that mix of some bad luck injuries that are generally unpredictable. Like getting hit by a pitch and breaking a bone in your hand or your wrist, that's not really a thing that carries over in the long term. But soft tissue injuries are more problematic. So I'm just curious where you fall on on Judge for his rest of season value and even thinking about him for keeper and dynasty perspectives because this feels like the ultimate peak in his value. It's hard to imagine another level for Aaron Judge right now. It, it really is. And so, yeah, I think when we talk about Aaron Judge, who, by the way, is the number one hitter in terms of standard 5x5 five five value, at least according to the Fangraphs uh, auction tool. Um, so... I, I mean, there, there's a couple of issues here. And so one is the one that you've raised, which is the injury history. And I, I sort of um, minimized that coming into the year because he did come off of a season where he didn't miss significant time with injury. Uh, so, you know, it, it's worked out so far, but the other issue too, is just that for somebody who's hit for power very consistently, he has hit another level this year, or at the very least, you could say has rediscovered the level 
that he uh, found in his first full season in 2017. Uh, so, you know, five years between, you know, a 50 plus home run season, then on pace now potentially for a 60 home run season, if he does stay healthy and, and keeps the pace. So, so there's regression risk, but then there's also, like you said, a potential health risk. So I think for those reasons, top five is probably a little too aggressive, but I don't know. I think not too far. I mean, number six, number seven player taken overall seems really appropriate to me. Yeah, I, I think if he stays healthy and basically doubles up on what he's done so far, if he has the 60 home run season, he does it with a good average, does it with fantastic run and RBI stats as well because of the quality of the lineup around him, that's the conversation people are going to be having about Judge next spring. Where does he fit in that picture? And then I think the people that are most concerned about Judge are also going to point to their love for stolen bases at the top of the draft board. If you're taking a hitter, you want someone who runs more than Judge does. And Judge is not a zero in that category. He's five for five this season. Uh, again, if he doubled up, he'd have 10 at the end of the season. People would be pretty happy with that. Usually gets you about a half dozen bags over the course of a full season. And that doesn't seem like it's going away. I think the thing that's really interesting about Judge right now that is different about now versus 2017, he's striking out a lot less. 25.2% K rate now compared to 30.7% back at that time. I mean, that gives him more potential in terms of power, in terms of batting average, and that's really exciting. He walks less now than he did back then, but for fantasy purposes, unless you're in an OBP league where having an OBP you know, up in the 400 range carries extra weight, you're almost better off having him put more balls in play because he does so much damage because there's so many guys on base that the things we care about are going to come back in even greater number with this sort of approach. It's kind of the the optimized version of Aaron Judge. Obviously, the hard hit rates and, and everything are also where you want them to be. It's amazing to see a player with a barrel rate close to 25%, but that's where it was back in 2017, and that's about where it is right now as well. So it's a really fun season. Uh, if you have him right now, you're probably feeling pretty good about things as you look ahead to the second half. I'm with you, though. If I'm drafting for the second half of the season, He's probably off the board within the first five or six picks for me. I think there's there's that much value in Aaron Judge right now. And Paul Goldschmidt would be a guy that I think is really tough to figure out in this same sort of vein because he's a few years older. I think we all had this idea that we were in the decline phase and it was going to be a graceful decline for Paul Goldschmidt. But there's a few things that have changed. I know he was among the players that changed up his bat this offseason which probably makes more of a difference than people realize. Uh, but St. Louis, the ballpark in St. Louis, has played a lot differently this season. And, of course, we have humidors in every park right now. Those are set to a certain specification. I've got a league-wide sort of basis, which means it's going to interact in pretty wildly differing ways, depending on what the actual conditions are like in each ballpark. So we've taken the new Bush Stadium, which has been a pitcher-friendly environment throughout its existence. We've made it almost an extreme hitter's park in 2022, which is not the only reason why Paul Goldschmidt is this good, but it's a contributing factor, and I think it makes it even more complicated in trying to figure out what exactly he's going to bring over the rest of this season. Yeah, and by the way, I really didn't factor the, the, the park factor issue into Goldschmidt's success. 15 out of 19 home runs at Bush Stadium, which is just surreal uh at least you know for for someone like myself who is having trouble adjusting to the idea that bush stadium is no longer a pitcher's park but yeah i don't i don't know that I, we like you said that we should 
over overemphasize that. I mean, on a basic level, Goldschmidt doesn't look like he has a really different profile than he did last season. Um, the the strikeout rate, the barrel rate. I mean, those those things uh, aren't really far out of line. In fact, the barrel rate is slightly lower than it was a year ago. So certainly Goldschmidt looks like somebody who's a little bit regression bound. He's long been somebody who gets a lot of hits on balls and play, but with a 387 BABIP, you figure there's maybe a little bit of regression there. Uh, just a ton of run production too. So all that combined has put him right behind Aaron judge in terms of five by five uh, fantasy value. Uh, they're one and two. And just as an aside, I have them both on my TGI TGFBI league. Uh, and uh, that's a team that's, you know, been comfortably in, in first place all season long. And I've, you know, I've been thinking, oh, well, maybe I'm just giving that team a little bit more focus this year. But I think to a certain extent, when you have a team that's doing really well like that, it's just a couple of, you know, a couple of good picks, maybe a little bit of good luck in the draft. Um, you know, get judge going, you know, typically is like a third rounder this year, Goldschmidt going a little bit later. So, uh, you know, I don't know if there's any lesson to be learned there. I guess the question for me, DVR, is we are taking kind of a mid-season look here, is if you're in a situation like I am in that league where you've got the top two offensive producers in fantasy, one or possibly both of them could be due for some aggression in the second half, what can you do to try to maintain your position uh, since there's not too much you could do about what those players do? I think it's just realizing that you have to keep churning like I, I don't know if this happens to people or if I'm just making this up as an actual condition of having a good team I, I wonder if people can ever get complacent they have a team that's producing you're first in your league you're up 10 15 20 standings points over the field maybe because you've got some players that have been just amazing in the first half of the season and maybe you, in some cases you don't spend as much time on the wire as you should or digging into possible pickups and upgrades I think you just got to make sure you keep finding more sources of value because like you said I mean the elite players you have on your roster you're not making any decisions on them every week anyway but it's just like resting on your laurels is where I think you can get completely kind of caught up in a situation like the one you're in I don't think you're doing that I think it's one of those things that you have to be mindful of and I think it's also just making sure that in any other league you're looking at the categories that are the closest and really focusing on those as the source of your upgrade you know, you want to make sure that if steals are, are really close, that you are looking every possible spot you can to find a few steals. Or if saves are where there's standings points to be gained, you're looking now at, at the relievers who could be in a better role once we get to the trade deadline, right? That trade deadline's only about a month away. August 2nd is the date this year. It's a Tuesday. Once you get to that point, there could be new closers. If you stash those guys you know, one or two weeks before the deadline and you're right, suddenly you've positioned yourself to make moves in the other categories where the studs that got you to where you are maybe aren't helping you, but you're at least putting that team in the best possible position to max out value. Again, a tip that works for everyone. You don't have to have Goldschmidt or Judge or, or any of the first half stars we're talking about to, to make this work, but I just think complacency is the one thing that can start to get you when things are going really, really well with a group of players like this on your roster. Dansby Swanson, by the way, is playing at a level that, I mean, I, I didn't think this was possible. I, I 
I think there were things to like in the underlying profile when you looked at Dansby Swanson really going back to the shortened season. But coming out of, of 2021, he maintained that improvement in barrel rate that we saw back in 2020, 11.4%. And I think with the K rate still sitting around 25%, with the ability to steal some bases, knowing that Atlanta is the kind of team that leans pretty consistently on its core starters, as much probably as any team in the league right now, playing time volume was going to be really safe, knowing that Acuna was going to come back and hoping that he was going to be most the player that he was before he got hurt, if not even the exact same player he was before he got hurt, the supporting cast was going to be good. Like There were, there were reasons to believe in Dansby Swanson being a little undervalued, but I didn't see anything in the profile that made me think, yeah, he's going to come out, he's going to flirt with the 300 average, and he's going to steal more bases than ever. Right, He's on pace for 20 steals. He's never done that before. He's already got a career high with 11. Oh, and he's going to hold all of the power from his career best season while doing it. Like That that trifecta, that was not something I saw coming from Dansby Swanson. No, me neither, which is why I don't have him rostered anywhere. And you, you mentioned the steals, so obviously he's just obliterating his uh, best paces uh, from, from past years. But also, it's another case when I looked at players who are doing much better than I expected them to back in March, uh, a lot of it has to do with team context. And it looks like Swanson's definitely uh, without uh, an injury or uh, just some serious fall off. I mean, he is just going to smash his runs and RBI um, career bests this year uh, at the rate that he's going. And I, I'm not sure that we could have foreseen that. I think that ties back in with that high batting average that you just mentioned. He's uh, hitting 380 on uh, balls and play. So I could see uh, Swanson being a regression candidate as well. Yeah, I think unless we find something in the underlying numbers where he's using the entire field more effectively, something that's a, a true core skill that's sustainable that would lead us to believe that the BABIP floor is higher. You have to bake in a little bit of a, a downturn in average, but there is some evidence of that in the first half. And I guess I'd be curious to know when you see a guy for a half season who's pulling the ball a lot less than he did in the past, do you start to believe in it? Do you think that's sticky through 70 plus games to the point where you'd say things are a little bit different and and maybe the the ceiling has changed as far as what a player can do with those balls in play. I'm probably not as skeptical as I should be in that situation because uh, you can certainly see that trend change when you're comparing what a player like Swanson did over you know several years previously versus what they've done over seventy some odd games. Uh, but I, I you know look if if I just don't see any reason for that big spike in, in BABIP then that I'm very worried about regression. Whereas if I see it supported by something, I'm kind of like, ah, well, you know, maybe, maybe this is sustainable. And I probably need to find a space in the middle there where I have, have some, some healthy skepticism. Uh, and, and again, I don't know that you'd necessarily do anything about it. I think that Swanson is plug and play, but uh, it's, it's yet another reason I think to not be complacent. If you have a player like Swanson on your roster who could uh, regress in the second half. It's pretty wild that Dansby Swanson, while hitting 27 homers and stealing nine bases, being a very valuable rotisserie player a season ago, had a 98 WRC+. plus. He was just a little bit below a league average offensive contributor. He had a 248 average, a 311 OBP, and a 449 slugging percentage. And to see him at a 134 WRC+, plus, which is a career high, and his previous best was 115. He played all 60 games in the pandemic-shortened season in 2020. It, it makes you 
almost certain that there's a, a crash coming. And I think the the degree of the crash is where I think people would try and figure out like what his value would be in that exercise of second half draft. This is where in-season projections, I think, at least offer some guidance, even though I think they have some limitations. The Bat X has Dansby Swanson at 255, 320, 432 the rest of the season. 13 homers, 7 steals. It's pretty good. It's above average. It's a 107 WRC+, plus, which still, if he did that the rest of the way, would give him the best numbers of his career. He'd be one short of what he did last year in home runs, but everything else would turn out to be pretty much a, a career high with the slash line. And it, it, we'd be talking about Swanson as the guy that definitely was among the big helpers in the middle rounds, league winners at the end of the season. That would still be the case, even if he gets to that projection. That projection seems a little bit light. I, I think I would look more for like a 265, 270 average, probably something closer to a 330 OBP, and probably something closer to a 450 or 460 slugging percentage. So almost splitting the difference between what has happened so far and what the projections are forecasting the rest of the way for Swanson. Again, because we see some underlying changes in the way he's using the entire field, and I think that can be more sustainable than we might realize. Yeah, I would agree. I think maybe it's an incremental difference where, yeah, like you said, instead of a 255 projected rest of season average, maybe it's 10 points higher um, rest of season. And it's, you know, I, I think in the end, you kind of wind up in the same place that you're, you're going to have to account for needing a little bit of help, particularly in batting average and maybe a little bit in run production. Uh, if, if you're anticipating that you need Swanson to double up to keep you where you are in the standings. If you were drafting this weekend for the rest of the season, would you think of Dansby Swanson as a top 30 overall player, top 45? I'm doing this kind of in 15-team mixed league mindset, basically throwing round numbers out there. But where do you think he would end up for you, just in terms of like a rough round value? I think about top 50, top 50 to top 60. So definitely not buying him as a top 12, which is what he's been. Well, top 12 hitter, so... Probably, you know, top 15, top 20 overall. So definitely not buying that. Okay. I think that's reasonable. I think that's about where he would go if you put a, a room of 15 different people together. We're not talking about Al versus 14 other Al's. We're talking about just a collection of, of different <laughs> analysts here. I think that's probably about where the consensus would be on a player like Dansby well, Swanson. Yeah. And, and part of the reason I would discount him more is that shortstop has just not turned out to be as robust and as deep as a lot of us thought that it would be going into this season. Um, so I, even if he regresses a lot, I don't see him falling way, way back into the pack. Yeah. I'm looking at the Rotowire earned values so far. I've got to uh, make it a 15 team league since we were just talking about 15 teams and the shortstop position. Let's see how, how has it really looked? compared to what I thought in my mind. Trey Turner, $40 so far. Swanson, second at 34 Tommy Edmond, shortstop eligible, 31 Jazz Chisholm and Francisco Lindor rounding out the top five, just under 30 bucks a piece. Jazz going on the IL. It is a little surprising to me that Lindor, he's, he started off so fast uh, and then kind of went quiet for what felt like most of May and the early part of June. Now he's kind of pushing his way back to what he was doing in the first part of the season. Pacing out for a, a 241, 25 homer, 15 steal sort of season. Good counting stats, which I think is kind of the, the secret this year to getting those extra valuable players. I didn't think of him as a top five shortstop off the cuff. 
And I've even got him on a couple of teams this year. I mean, we've had some disappointments. Bo Bichette so far hasn't been the player we expected him to be. Doesn't mean he won't be in the second half. Obviously, Tatis has been hurt, hasn't played yet this season. He's one of those guys that you'd expect to see on a leaderboard like this. And do you think the lack of production from the shortstop position is something that will carry over into the second half. I mean, Marcus Simeon, a shortstop eligible player that's had a really disappointing first half so far. Xander Bogarts hitting for a really high average. Run production's good. Power is way down. Six home runs for Bogarts so far this season is a pretty big surprise. You know, Corey Seager hitting 229. That's pretty weird, even though the power's been there and the underlying numbers look good for him. I know Seager's come up on an episode of Rates and Barrels as someone that I actually believe in as a like a bounce back candidate in the second half because his profile to me looks about as good as it's looked for most of his time with the Dodgers. So how do you feel about the state of this position moving into the second half? Do you think we'll see some significant recovery? I think we will because all the players that you mentioned do seem like bounce back candidates. There's one name that you haven't mentioned and that's Wander Franco. And I know we'll, we'll talk about him a little bit later on, but I think he may have been one of the bigger misses so far this year. And I think that there's reason maybe to, to be a little suspicious about a bounce back uh, for him. Uh, by the way, Bobby Witt Jr. just really below the cutoff of the players that you mentioned. And I think that as deep a, of a position as shortstop is, that's something that's been a, a pleasant surprise for me, for him to, to keep up with uh, you know the, the top players at, at this uh, position, which again, could still be very deep in the second half. Yeah, Bobby Witt Jr., I mean, I've said it many times on this show during draft season. The ADP was just too high for me. I didn't know how quickly he was going to make the adjustments, and so far I'm wrong. I mean, I think April kind of turned out the way I thought it might for him, and since then he's made he's made a lot of changes. The power's been there. Speed's been there. Less of a batting average liability than a lot of other players, and plus the league average being down, too. 243 right now is not a bad average when you're looking at players across this position. I mentioned Lindor before. He's at 241. Trevor Story's at 224. Story's out-earned Bobby Witt Jr. so far, despite almost a 20-point difference in batting average. But yeah, Witt has been excellent so far. A few other surprises at this position. Andres Jimenez sitting up at $17 earned so far. I didn't expect that to happen whatsoever. You look at a guy like Willie Adames, he missed some time with an injury. He's sitting at 15, and he's doing that while hitting 212. That's a guy that plays all the time. The power looks like it's legit. I wouldn't be at all surprised if Adames ends up playing his way and maybe finishing as a top 10 shortstop in terms of uh, earned value, so long as he's healthy over the second half of the season. There have been a lot of injuries this position. Tim Anderson has missed some time as well, so I think that's a contributing factor. Correa has missed time. Maybe a little more expected given the history there of of different things that have caused him to go on the IL over the course of his career. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk about Wander right now. It can't all be sunshine and roses. And I think it's Wander's in that special group of players where prospect hype was just at a crazy high level. I mean, Vlad Jr. had this, right? He, he was in that stratosphere. The, the very best of the best prospects where we think players going to come up, players going to have immediate success, players going to be a star. And fantasy-wise, nothing could possibly go wrong. And it's like, in a weird way, and injury has been a factor for Wander too. He's missed time on the IL, and I think you could very reasonably argue that some portion of the 48 games he's played were at something well less than 100% health. So I don't want to draw any long-term conclusions at all from what we're seeing, but if we were drafting this weekend, we would have to make a short-term decision on how much we would value Wander who's line, by the way, at 262, 294, 408. That's a slightly above average offensive line. This is the environment we're in halfway through the season where numbers like that are not as bad as they appear on the surface. So the K rate's still low. The weird thing is he's been swinging at a lot of pitches outside the zone, which is not exactly something I expected from Wander Franco, but I guess it can be a trait that comes with a player that doesn't strike out a lot because mm-hmm. they have good bat-to-ball skills. You can chase, like, if you're so good at hitting stuff outside the zone that you can hit pitches at your ankles or pitches that are outside or pitches above the zone or wherever those pitches might be, you're going to make suboptimal swing decisions. And I feel like you're going to get punished for those decisions a lot more against big league pitching than you did in the minor leagues. So this just seems like an extremely talented player who's still making some adjustments. And as we always wonder, how quickly does he actually make those adjustments? Are we talking about Wander in the same breath that we're talking about Bobby Witt Jr. figuring things out over the course of the second half of the season? It wouldn't surprise me if it played out that way, but I don't know if I would want to draft him in the fifth round of a 15-team league right now to find out if it's actually going to happen right away in these next three months. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't. And the thing that really concerns me a little bit and definitely makes me double take a little bit in terms of what my uh, expectations were going into this year. Last year, Franco, and again, putting up a, a really good line, but he did it with a barrel rate just under 5%. That's That's not very good. And instead of looking at that, what I looked at was the fact that he had just over 300 plate appearances. He homered seven times. The run production was the the rate was just unreal. So in a little less than half of a season worth of games and worth of plate appearances, he scored 53 runs and drove in 39 as a rookie. So I'm looking at that and thinking, oh, okay, well, he's going to get, he's, he had success as a rookie. He's going to come in in the second season. He's going to be able to hit 20 home runs. He's going to maintain that 288 average or thereabouts. And it, it's just going to be all up from there. And that's, you know, you and I have both been around long enough to know that, I, you know, I shouldn't have been looking at it that way. And I, at the very least, should have dug a little bit deeper and see that, that he did that with, with very little power. Uh, and then there's even less power this year. So um, 
yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be a, a, a linear uh, progression and, and he may figure it out in the second half, but I think there's going to have to be a real uptick in, in power uh, in terms of exit velocity and, and that translating into more barrels for him to necessarily be putting up a better line and a better counting stat rate than what we've seen so far. I think the, the low barrel rate is worth looking at, worth thinking about, worth building into projections, short-term and, and long-term. And I do remember, I think it was, I think it was Jeff Pontus at some point a few years ago had some some pretty interesting, was it, I think it was launch angle numbers for Wander in the minors. And I was skeptical at the time because I think Wander was still, geez, 18, 19 years old. I just remember those numbers coming out and people reacting to them and it, it matters. But I, I just said, it's like, he's a kid. Like there's, there's a lot of adjustments that a player that young is, is going to make. Um, but it, it was, it was worth pointing out. It was a, a caution flag that I think has, you know, shown us that, well, Hey, look, it, it doesn't happen quickly and it can lead you to a, a result in the big leagues. That is not what you expected right away. And it can explain why the in-game power in the minor leagues wasn't where you, we might have expected to be, even though, again, age-to-level numbers and slash lines were still very good. It, it it was one of those things that I was probably a little bit too quick to dismiss in hindsight. I think it's so hard to come up with comps when we're talking about switch-hitting 21-year-olds in the big leagues. I mean, he debuted as a 20-year-old 20, 20 last summer. So few players get to the big leagues that quickly that I don't even know if you can look at barrel rates for similarly aged players and say, this is what usually happens. Like there's just, it, it's a statistically insignificant number of players to look at that have been under the microscope like this. I don't know. I don't know what to do. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what I can reasonably do with Wanda right now. I think the, the best cautionary tale from draft season that someone put out there, this might've been, you know, we were asked about Wanda and he said, well, I think this could be like a DJ LeMayhew type season. Lots of batting average, lots of runs, lots of RBIs, not a lot of power. And I said, okay, well, if you draft that in the third or fourth round, are you okay with that? Does it sink you? Does it does it really ruin your team if that's the outcome you get, knowing that there's a possibility that the power at some point just comes in a wave, that it, it does get unlocked for half a season or maybe even a full season? Obviously, the full season thing didn't happen but it's that half season possibility that's still on the table that keeps people interested. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I think even that projection might be a little bit optimistic because it, it really requires the lineup around him to probably hit a little bit better. Um, and, and he will have to make some upward movement and batting average. It's, you know, it's, it's a reasonable outcome, but then like you say, for what you drafted him for, is that still putting you in a hole? So it'll be interesting to see see how it plays out. And of course, he could, you know, way exceed those expectations. Maybe you know, I've now gone from too high to, to too low. I I, no, I just think this is among the many things that makes playing fantasy baseball fun. I've got a historical leaderboard up. I chopped it down to rookies who have at least two hundred plate appearances in their rookie season. So I'm just looking for other. Other barrel rates like this from any rookie, regardless of age, going back to 2015, uh, some names that are similar. Again, Wander Franco last year, 4.9% barrel rate. Uh, Cabrian Hayes, his 2021 barrel rate, 5.1%. Okay, so that's, that gives you an idea of a similar player going through it right now. You go back five years, Byron Buxton as a rookie, 4.3% barrel rate. 
just I just think about how much a player like Buxton has physically changed, how much stronger he is now than he was when he debuted. That's the kind of difference I think you can you can sort of project on players, or at least some people can project on players. Maybe I don't do it as well as others. But Wander isn't small. Like when I look at Wander, I don't see a guy and go, yeah, he's got to add 20 pounds of muscle before he hits the ball hard. I think it's more just getting acclimated to the best pitching on the planet and finding ways to do damage against it. And that is not a quick process sometimes, even when you're talking about some of the very best prospects in baseball. Yeah. You know, and it's probably an overused example, but Mike Trout, Mike Trout struggled uh, in his first exposure to the majors. So I know it's not analogous because Franco didn't really struggle initially. I mean, maybe for the first two, three weeks, but uh, yeah, it's not a linear process. That's that's the key takeaway here, and uh, I think there's a, a wide range of outcomes that we can expect from Franco in the second half. And you know, fortunately, most of us aren't drafting again right now, so we can sit back and watch and try to piece together the uh, you know all the clues in the off season. So me having a long winded, I don't really know, and I'm excited. Uh, for seven minutes probably didn't help a lot of people. So let me let me frame it this way. Wander versus Jorge Polanco for the rest of the season. If you were choosing between the two, who would you rather have now that Polanco is healthy again? I would rather have Franco. Franco over Polanco. Okay. Willie Adames versus Wander. It, it feels absurd to say Adames, and yet I actually do trust him more. Okay, but Willie's not a bad player, and I'm yeah. saying, I'm, yes, I'm a Brewers fan. I'm not saying that because I'm a Brewers fan. I'm saying they're projected to be equal in terms of dollar value by the bad X the rest of the season. Marcus Simeon versus Wander. That's tough, too, because uh, he's had such an up and down season so far. I think I am going Marcus Simeon there. Okay, so you've you know, got that. Yeah, yeah, we've had some signs of life more recently. I guess all this is to say that this group of players all projected to be about $8 players for the rest of the season. They're all appropriately valued against each other right now. And I think this would put Wander, if we were drafting for the rest of the season, probably just on the fringe of the top 100 overall. There'd still be someone or a few someones in the league willing to take a chance in that potential. I don't think they're necessarily wrong for that. And I think the risk reward in that range is more appropriate. Again, kind of going back to that Bobby Witt Jr. example, I wasn't comfortable with Witt where he was going. I was comfortable with Julio Rodriguez where he was going. And to dunk on myself, I don't have Julio Rodriguez everywhere. If I was really that smart, I would have had him literally everywhere. I have him in like two leagues right now, and that's kind of disappointing to me. But the risk-reward seems about right in that range. Like Pick 100 to 120 is probably where I'd expect Wander to reasonably go for the rest of 2022. And then what he does in the second half will have a massive impact on how excited everybody is about him going into next season. Let's get to a few more players. Adelise Garcia, a Nando guy that I didn't believe in at all. I have professed that I think the lesson for me with Adelise Garcia is yet again needing to be more precise with the amount of playing time I expect a player to get. I think that's where I was too quick to dismiss Garcia as a somewhat replaceable offensive player. And to his credit, he's also lowered his K rate. He was at 31.2% last year. He's cut that to 26.5% this year. You can get by with this approach if you keep that K rate in that range because it's a kind of middling average, passable OBP, really good defense in the outfield. 
And that last point, that continues to carry his playing time. You, you do damage, right? You make some things happen in the base pass. You play great defense. You're going to play, especially on a team that is still figuring a lot of things out for its long-term future. Yeah, and he's just another example of uh, underscoring the importance of playing time, as you say, uh, position in the lineup, the team context. The Rangers have been a better offense than I expected them to be. And from what I was hearing from our, our friends and colleagues, uh, probably a better team than, than a lot of people did. And, um, you know, what I remember hearing over and over again, and, and also thinking it and saying it myself was, well, the Rangers, you know, they made some moves, but they're really top heavy. This is not a good lineup one through nine, but you know, we didn't expect that Jonah Heim was going to be playing as much as he was, as he has been and be as offensively robust as he has been. Um, there, there have been some players that have come through. I think Nathaniel Lowe has uh, has taken a step forward. I think even with Marcus Simeon only recently starting to turn it around, this is a better lineup than I expected. And when you've got Garcia hitting in the middle of it, I mean, he's on the fringes of a 100-run, 100-RBI pace. And that's after driving in 90 runs last year. And then he's stealing bases at a, a more frequent pace, as you said, striking out less often. And that's made a, a marginal difference in his batting average. And suddenly it's just interesting how these, you know, sometimes just marginal things, if they, if there are enough of them happening in the right direction, they can make a huge difference. And so for me, that's really what explains Garcia being a, a top fantasy producer in the first half, as opposed to, you know, kind of the mid to lower round uh, player that I saw him as coming in. Yeah, I wonder if as a 29-year-old, especially, the Rangers might see him as a player they could trade at this deadline. There are plenty of teams that want to get a little more power and put a good defender in the outfield that they can play in center if they need to and certainly can just play in right and be really happy with what they get. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's on the move, but if he stays in Texas, I think the, the counting stats will be just fine based on where he hits in the order and that massive improvement uh, with the strikeout rate. Let's get to some pitchers. I feel like we've got to get to some pitchers on this episode, and we'll save some hitters for a future week. Lucas Giolito is just not himself right now. And I'm curious if you've dug in and found a clear reason why, or if you have any reason to be optimistic that if you maybe drafted him in the second or third round back on draft day, that you might actually get the player you were expecting. The projections have moved a little bit to the point where he looks more like an SP2 now by projection than a fantasy ace. So where do you fall on Giolito after this uh, rough first half? I see him as somebody that I would definitely want to target in a trade if I didn't have him already. Because I look at the, at the profile, and to me what it looks like is that there's some command and control issues. Because he's still getting a lot of swings and misses, not quite as many or not quite as frequently as in the last couple of years, but still a very good rate, uh, 13.5%, um, allowing more contact in the zone than normally, but not a, a horrific rate at 84.2%. But the fact that he is allowing more of that contact in the zone, that he's allowing a lot more hard contact than he usually does. Uh, that he's so he's got a high home run to, uh, per nine ratio. He's got a high BABIP. I think those are all things that could be corrected because you look at the strikeout and the walk ratios, and they're pretty much in line with what you expect from Lucas Giolito. So I think all the stuff that's happening on contact is something that can be fixed if there is a command issue there. And the fact that he is still missing a lot of bats means that whatever is happening on contact 
isn't going to be as important if say it's, it's happening with like Tyler Wells. So yeah, I, I see him as, as a top buy low candidate right now. Yeah, I would. If I'm looking to bolster my pitching for the second half, I would have no hesitation trading for Giolito. I think the benefit of going after him right now is that compared to what you would have had to give up in April or May as part of an early season trade, maybe you're getting him for 85, 90 cents on the dollar. I say 85 to 90, not because the performance has been that close to what you expected, but because I still expect whoever has Giolito to see the things you're talking about and say, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty high on him too. Uh, but maybe you're getting him for the equivalent of a, a $20 bat as opposed to a $23 or $25 bat, right? I think it's that kind of discount that you may be able to get. Or maybe if the manager that has Giolito has found other pitching, maybe they'll be more willing to part with him too. I think that's always a huge factor if someone's underperforming. If there's found money somewhere else in the roster, sometimes you can pry loose a player like Giolito. Alec Manoa is a guy that I think has been really interesting so far this season. I think he also... Along with Shane McClanahan and a few other rookies from last year, put this idea in my head that I can trust rookie pitchers more easily than I can trust rookie hitters. I don't know if that's necessarily going to be borne out as a good idea, but with Manoa in particular, I mean, we saw so little of him in the minor leagues because of when he was drafted. Uh, you know, the lost minor league season in 2020, and he got to the big leagues with. 35 innings as a Blue Jay in their minor league system between parts of two seasons. And he's been fantastic. He's over 200 career big league innings already since debuting a year ago. He's got a 270 ERA, a 101 whip, and 212 strikeouts in those 206 and a third innings, which is just incredible. What's next for Manoa? How sustainable is this level? Because this this is an SP1 by results. Is he an SP1 in the underlying numbers? Well, I'm just going to throw out one stat. It's a stat that we all love and rely on, uh, just one year-to-year comparison. Last year, a 27.7% strikeout rate. This year, a 22.7% strikeout rate. So if you were only looking at that, you'd think, oh my God, what happened to Alec Manoa this year? But one of the other things that he did really great as a rookie was that when he wasn't missing bats, he wasn't allowing a lot of hard contact. So you know, very much kind of the flip side of what we were talking about with Lucas Giolito. And I think that the worst case scenario is that you continue to get this version of Alec Manoa, uh, that there's not going to be any rebound and strikeout rate, but he's going to be one of the best pitchers in the majors in terms of uh, minimizing exit velocity on flies and liners and getting a lot of high flies and liners that are easy outs. Then this is a version uh, of Manoa that is a top five fantasy pitcher so far to date. And if you get any kind of rebound and strikeouts with that, um, <laughs> there's not much uh, room to go go up from there. So, yeah, that's a really long-winded way of saying that. I think it's absolutely sustainable. Yeah, and I think the thing that you, you can lose sight of a little bit with Manoa, I know I, I, I wasn't as in tune with this as I should have been earlier in the season. Because he's got two fastballs that he throws a lot, the four-seamer and the sinker, I think the ability to reduce hard contact is actually pretty sustainable. I think that's one of the underlying approaches that that makes a lot of sense to me. Is was one that's going to can, it, it, you're, the hitter might guess fastball, but they'll still guess wrong on which fastball it is, which makes it harder to barrel up that pitch. 
and it's not just a fastball, you know, four-seamer sinker combo. It's obviously a good slider, too, mixes in the occasional changeup. So I just think he's one of those pitchers where everything works really well in sync, and that keeps hitters guessing, and that's going to keep that that quality of contact down. I don't know if he's going to be as good as he's been so far. A 3.8% barrel rate so far this season is incredible. 25.8% hard hit rate. Both of those numbers even better than where he was as a rookie. But he does look like someone who's at least better than average, perhaps a lot better than average at limiting hard contact. And think, especially when you're pitching in the AL East, having to go into Yankee Stadium, having to go into Fenway Park, being at home at Rogers Center for half your games. Those environments, those lineups especially, can do so much damage that that is a really extra, really nice extra skill to have to be able to reduce hard contact, even if you're not going to miss bats like an SP1. I think he's an easy top 15 starting pitcher for me the rest of the way. I, I think the downside if things start to unravel is that you're probably getting SP2 sort of production from him, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think this actually works really well. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a case where if you're rostering Manoa, there's a good chance that you're doing well in your league because you're you're just getting even so much more production than what you drafted. And I think this is a case where not that anybody should be resting on, on their laurels, but I don't think that there's reason to ex- be expecting uh, a lot of regression from uh, from Manoa from here on out. Let's talk about another young pitcher, Tristan McKenzie, who in the second half of last season seemed to figure some things out, carried it over to the first half of this season, and then kind of hit a rough patch in the middle of May that he's been stuck in. Home runs have been a big issue for him this year. Talk about another guy that has a reduced strikeout rate. Fortunately for McKenzie, he has cut his walk rate for the season. So as far as strikeouts and walks go, maybe this is a better baseline expectation for him going forward. But if he's going to have this much of a home run issue... He's not taking as much of a step forward this season as I had hoped even just six weeks ago. Yeah, um, and I've got a just a, a personal dilemma with McKenzie. He had the two-step this week, and my thinking going into it was he's been giving up all these home runs lately. I probably shouldn't start him, but I thought, well, it's a two-start week, and he's he's Tristan McKenzie. He's rostered close to everywhere. <laughs> you know, I, I can't sit him. And, you know, did not have a good first start uh, this week. So, you know, that got me looking to exactly how widely rostered is McKenzie. On CBS, it's almost 90%, 89% to be exact. On ESPN and Yahoo, a little over three out of every four leagues. So I think at this point, where you're looking at, the, like you said, from mid-May forward, mid-May forward, his last eight starts, a 4.76 ERA, 15 home runs over 51 innings. I think he is droppable in 12-teamers at this point. It's a little reminiscent to me of that stretch that Tarek Skubal went through. In fact, I think he went through it twice last year with extended stretches where he was just giving up two, three home runs every start. And I you know, I think that uh, in 12-teamers, you, you can find a, an adequate replacement, and I don't think the ceiling is so high that you're going to be really feeling like you, you're missing out uh, if he does turn it around. Yeah, I think the key to McKenzie long-term might be taking a page from Manoa's book and finding a two-seamer that he can use because then he could throw the four-seamer a little bit less, get hitters guessing wrong on fastballs, and still have two breaking pitches with the curveball and the slider that he can use, right? That fourth pitch might go a really long way for McKenzie. So I don't know if there's any point back when he was a prospect or really early in his career where he maybe had another fastball that he could throw, but the four-seamer has not been very good for him. And I think because it's velo-wise, it's just very ordinary. A 92.3-mile-an-hour four-seamer these days is a very hittable pitch for big league hitters. I think 
that's part of why I think that home run rate is going to be a problem. Uh, definitely a mistake on my part. I made a trade for him probably right around the time this stretch started, and I've absorbed the bad ratios and probably taken on a pitcher whose value is quite a bit lower than it was when I made that deal for him back in uh, the middle part of May. Let's get to a few relievers here. Clay Holmes, and I think he's one of those guys that when we go back and look at trades that were made at the last trade deadline, I kind of shrugged it off as, well, bullpen depth. Yankees got a good bullpen. They got one more guy. They got a guy they like. Sure, makes sense. He stopped walking guys like the day he became a Yankee. Obviously, has done an amazing job filling in for Aroldis Chapman. And I thought I saw a tweet suggesting that Aaron Boone is putting Chapman back in the closer role once Chapman is back in the fold. But if Chapman wobbles, I think it's clear now that they have someone in Holmes they can absolutely trust in that role. Well, and I see now I thought uh, I I remembered seeing something about uh, Aaron Boone saying that Holmes had had, uh, you know, earned his uh, place in that that role. So I will have hmm. to see. Uh, I guess maybe one of us is, is misreading tweets or something or maybe Aaron Boone's thinking both things. Uh, but <laughs> I, I'm kicking myself a little bit for not having Holmes anywhere because when he was with Pittsburgh, I remember doing one of the sorts that I like to, to do. And, and I bring this up enough on, on these podcasts that, you know, it should be obvious that you know, I look at launch angles. I look at average launch angles for ground balls and average launch angles for flies and, and pop-ups uh, because it's, it's BABIP related. And Holmes has been really good at getting ultra low grounders. He was when he was with Pittsburgh. And I just thought, Dang, it's just too good that it's just too bad that this guy doesn't have any fantasy relevance because he's got this really useful skill. <laughs> so he was on my radar, and I didn't act when there was an opportunity to actually, you know, do something about him having a, a fantasy relevant role. But I, I, you know, I think if he does stay in the role, so that's obviously something we're all going to be doubling back on to, to see what Aaron Boone actually said and paying attention to what, what Boone does going forward. But if he does stay in the role, I think this is something that he can sustain. He's got a ground ball rate above 80%, which is just unreal. Like you said, he doesn't walk anybody any anymore. He's uh, not going to give up very many hits on, on uh, balls in play. And the ones he does give up are you know going to be largely singles. So it's a good skill. And I looked at that leaderboard again, and Holmes is near the top of it again this year. But I looked at, well, who else is there? How can I avoid making this mistake again? And among relievers, you got Tyler Rogers. Uh, so he still has that skill, even though he's not had a very good season. Dylan Tate, just a name to tuck away. Somebody who is not going to uh, get really punished on on balls and play. Uh, among starters, Graham Ashcraft, somebody that I've not really had a, a lot of interest in, but can succeed uh, even though he doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. Uh, Andre Palente, see if he can stay in that Cardinals rotation. We have talked about Jonathan Heasley a number of times in the past few weeks. This is a skill that Heasley has. And uh, Jason Alexander, uh, I don't know if he's going to uh, have any kind of shelf life uh, in, in Milwaukee. He doesn't strike anybody out. I think maybe he's a little too extreme in that regard, but just another name to add there. Yeah, I think it's always a good sort of list to look at because finding the next one can be extremely valuable. I think you can actually end up with a few names on teams that could trade someone out of the closer role and then suddenly the the sixth or seventh inning reliever ends up being the best option, even though usage might steer you a different direction in some of those cases. So I, I like that group uh, quite a bit. Uh, and I think as far as Holmes and the Boone comments go, I don't think we're wrong. I think he's been kind of waffling and refusing to answer questions about it. So entirely possible that we've seen 
comments suggesting that each of those guys could be the closer because it sounds like he doesn't want to name a closer. So there you go. Confusion uh, at its finest. I would say with Clay Holmes, he's a hold anyway. Even if they were to name Chapman the closer, which doesn't sound like they will, hold on to Holmes. He's good enough as your last reliever, and they could end up going to the committee route. Plenty of teams are doing that. Maybe they'll mix and match based on handedness of of the opposing uh, hitters that they're going to see in those spots. Uh, One more reliever I want to throw out there before we go. Jorge Lopez, who's been fantastic so far this season. I feel like it's a a late victory for our friend Eno Saris, who saw the the stuff for a long time and kept thinking it was going to happen. Hasn't worked out, of course, as a starter, but better late than never, especially when you put someone like this in a closer role and they can take the job and run with it. Uh, Behind Clay Holmes in terms of dollars earned on that Rotowire earned value calculator that I mentioned earlier, Josh Hader, Jorge Lopez tied at $17 earned so far. And Lopez is doing it not with a ton of saves, 13 saves so far this season, but over a strikeout per inning and just amazing ratios. A .73 ERA and a .81 whip so far for Jorge Lopez. You have to imagine that with the Orioles, you're taking a step forward this year, having a lot of prospects playing well, um, getting better results in the big leagues. Like, they're still probably trading guys like Lopez at this deadline to continue looking a little more towards 2023 and probably 2024. And when you have a closer pitching like this, teams tend to give up quite a bit more to bolster their bullpens than um, than you can really say no to if you're in a position like Baltimore. Yeah, it, it, it's a little bit of a similar situation to Texas in that the Orioles are better, have been better than we were expecting, but Whereas Texas, you could argue, could make a push for a postseason spot. That's just not going to be happening with the Orioles. So I think you're right. A little bit of a different situation there. And that, you know, players that uh, have a a, a prominent role in Baltimore may not necessarily have the same role uh, if if they go elsewhere. But yeah, Lopez showing great skills, hasn't given up a home run yet, has only allowed two barrels so far, which at this point of the season is pretty phenomenal. And that's contributed to those really uh, minuscule ratios that you were talking about so uh yeah a little bit of a similar profile actually to clay holmes a lot of ground balls but still a pretty good strikeout rate and uh definitely a lot more value than i was expecting going into 2022 and maybe even a, i would say a better chance now than he would have had if he was part of the trade similar to what the marlins and orioles did before opening day the tanner scott trade you know if he was part of something like that earlier in the year i wouldn't have had much optimism that Lopez would find saves in a different bullpen. I think he's shown some skills at a level that I didn't expect for a long enough period of time now, where I think there's a better chance that a team with bullpen woes might actually be comfortable giving him a shot as the closer. If he ended up in a place like Philadelphia, there's a better chance that Jorge Lopez would get saved still than there was probably three months ago. Not because he's done it and established himself in that role specifically, but just because he's pitched so well for a prolonged period where I think teams might view him more as their best reliever and yeah. that might not have been the case going into the season. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely a, a scenario I could see as well. So that's what makes the trade deadline so interesting. So I, I think you're right. Yeah. We don't necessarily count Lopez out as having value over the last couple of months. So we are going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Could be a two-parter. might be something that gets discussed again next week because there were some under-discussed players on our rundown who did not make it to the air today, probably because I am very long-winded. Uh, feel free to give us a follow on Twitter. Al is at AlMilkYourBB. I am at Derek Van Riper. If you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, really appreciate a nice review if you have the time to do that. 
And before the long holiday weekend here in the States, got one more episode of the show coming up on Friday. It'll be a live episode, 4 o'clock Eastern, on the Athletic Fantasy YouTube channel. Of course, the pod version will drop in this feed soon after. We'll break down all of the intriguing waiver wire targets as the weekend approaches, as we do each and every week. For Al Melchior, I'm Derek Van Riper. We're back with you on Friday. Thank you.